gravitating toward one eye over the other, it's because one of my eyes is swollen here. I had one of those Georgia mosquitoes come after me yesterday, so um, I think that's what it is. Allison Danforth thinks it's a spider, but I think that she's just being dramatic. So. Um, my kids are gone. Kelly's gone. There was a time where I was very independent, by the way. I was very... Kelly and I got married. I, I relished being on my own every once in a while, you know, that, well, not sure if it was a red box kind of night, or if it was go out and, you know, get coffee or go see a movie, whatnot, now it's like, I wake up in the middle of the night, and she's not there, and I go, oh, no, I, just, I miss her, um, I miss my babies too, don't miss the babies at three o'clock in the morning like I do with my wife, but, um, uh, they're, they're in Kentucky now, so, um, Kelly and I, had the sad news uh, a couple weeks ago, something we had suspected, um, but we found out definitively two or three weeks ago that uh, an old pastor friend of mine uh, was, uh, was unfaithful in their marriage, and um, he it was something that had been going on for a while, and he was not only let go from his church, but uh, it doesn't doesn't look like they're going to remain married. Um, and Kelly and I just sat next to the TV one night just kind of talking about that, and she's a godly woman. Um, and we just got talking about... She, I think at one point Kelly asked him, how could, how could she stay with him? How could she not leave? Um, this is someone I call a friend. Um, both of them friends. And I said, I don't know. I don't, because it, it, some people, hey, look, she's a godly woman. And she loves Jesus. And um, just don't know how that marriage could survive that. And, it, and eventually when she asked that question, I was like, man, all that, all, the, only, the only thing that could endure that kind of infidelity is a love of the gospel. It's the only kind. There's no, the only thing that could allow someone to stay in that unfaithful of a marriage would be to say, and she's not legally and, and, and morally bound to, to stay with him, but the only kind of love that I could conceive of where a woman would stay with a man in that situation would be to say that the only love I have for him is found in Jesus and not in him. Now, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure if that's how it will play out, but every time we come to the Bible, we need to have that love story in mind when we read the Bible. Because Jesus is getting ready, as we're getting ready to see, Jesus is getting ready to teach them something that is one of, in my opinion, one of the most offensive things He has to say in the Bible. We're getting ready to read one of the most offensive things Jesus ever says. And he knows it's going to be offensive. In fact, he says two different things, and both of them are offensive on some level. And once many of them hear, as a matter of fact, next week we're going to find out most people walk away. 
Most of his disciples walk away after he has to say this. And Jesus knows that. And what we need to understand about why he has this specific teaching and why he decides to say it the way he does is these people walk away from what Jesus says thinking, how could he say that? How could he do that? And what they should really be asking is, why would a God ever do that for me? They're asking the wrong question. And so, if we could, open up to John chapter 6, verses 22 through 59. And as we read this, keep in mind, Jesus isn't just giving them another teaching about himself. He's, he's showing them a picture of the gospel and the lengths to which our God would go to save <coughs> condemned sinners. So if you'll stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 6, verse 22. Holy Spirit, who John says, On the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the word of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that whoever, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. 
Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of the bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That's spelling it out pretty plainly there. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the Father, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught Let's pray. Father, send your spirit now that the power of this message, the power of this text may rest in the power of God and not in Avi. Father, nothing less than the power of God can allow us to see and understand and love the meaning of this text. And all these things we ask in your son's name, amen. Y'all can be seated. Wow! <laughs> That's a lot. Um, how many people have ever seen The Walking Dead? Raise your hand. Seriously? Only that many people? Okay, be for real. Um, I have a friend... I have a friend who lives on the other side of Atlanta. He's a pastor. And they film episodes of The Walking Dead behind his church. No lie. He told me that a few times, it's like eerie. One time, he said, he, he came out of the church just having preached on the resurrection. There were like zombies walking around the field. That is about as bizarre and stunning as it would have been to hear Jesus say, if you want to have eternal life, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Don't assume these people had any idea what he meant. They should have. As Stephen read, you know, we, we see the work of Christ in light of the Day of Atonement. We see what he's saying now in light of Exodus 16. There are Old Testament themes and imagery taking place here. But let's not assume these people had any idea what he meant, because we know, as we'll see next week, most of them left. This is the point. This is the kind of the, the, the watershed moment in John when people have a choice. You can follow this guy or you need to leave. This is the point where Jesus stops being sexy. This is the point where people go, whoa, this was kind of cool when you were like making fish and stuff. Now you're like talking about, I'm supposed to like eat him or something. Imagine if you heard him say that. This is the guy that you crossed back over and then came back over to find this guy thinking that he was really something that was really neat and he was doing all these amazing things and now he says something like, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. It was so hard to hear that. 
And we're going to see most people did not have ears to hear. But Jesus is not promoting a zombie apocalypse. This is not the walking dead. This is actually the opposite of the walking dead. Jesus is offering them the crucified living. Sinners can have no part of Jesus, no part of His rewards, blessings, gifts, until they come after a crucified Jesus. Here's Jesus' point. For those who are living, eating flesh and drinking blood is disgusting, it's gross, and it's off-putting. But for those who are dead in their sins, eating Jesus' flesh and drinking His blood is a sumptuous feast that gives life. You see, the problem here is that these people are the walking dead and they don't even know it. Because, in fact, if they did, Jesus says they would believe Him and they would find life. English Puritan Richard Baxter said this about when he, when he comes to the pulpit and preaches. This is how he described it. I preached as never sure to preach again and as one dying man to dying men. To be a sinner is to be a dying person. And to be in Christ, to believe in Him, is to have life. Satan showed Eve, what did we learn last week? He showed Eve a fruit that was appealing to the eyes, and he said, take and eat. And now Jesus is saying, watch this, take and eat, and I will give you life. Jesus is undoing the curse of Adam with his own body. Jesus is the bread of life, never molding, never crumbling, never rotting. That apple is gone. Jesus says, when you ate the apple, you got hungry again. When your ancestors ate bread and manna, they got hungry again. But you're not going to get hungry if you eat what I have to give you. So there's a large crowd still following Jesus, and this is what he says to them in verse 25. Verses 25 through 27. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, stop right there. Anytime, he, anytime you see that, verily, I don't know if y'all, KJ Beers might have verily there. Anytime he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you need to listen up. Jesus has something to say. This is what he says. You're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. So Jesus is saying this, You're coming to Me because you ate your fill. You had your tummy filled. Your belly's full. Jesus says, You're only coming after Me because you can gain something from Me. You're only coming after Me because you profit from following Me. You only come after Me because you love the things I can get you more than you love me. This is how the Apostle Paul describes enemies at the cross in Philippians chapter 3. Just, just listen. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. This is how he describes them. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Their God is their belly. It does not take an ounce of faith, according to Jesus, to follow Him simply because He feeds your flesh. That's what a dog does. A dog will be your friend as long as you do what? You feed Him. I'm sorry, dog lovers. Or her. 
These crowds are, in some sense, not to be too dramatic and not to degrade them, they're, they're doing what dogs can do. The second Jesus stops giving them miracles, they're going to stop doing what? Following Him. What Jesus is saying is this. You want to satisfy your most basic human carnal instinct. I have bread that will feed your soul. This bread will not perish and you will never hunger again. Jesus is telling these people, as He's telling us now, there are people in this life who will claim to be following Jesus, but in reality they're just feasting on something else. If your soul's spiritual diet in this world is Fox News... Oh, it just went there. Jesus, you are not feeding your soul and you're going to go hungry. If you are spending more time kind of consumed with conservative political causes than you are reading the Word of God, you're not feeding your soul and you will go hungry. If you're following Jesus for what He can get you in this world and not simply in the next, you're following your most basic, visceral urge and you will go hungry problem with these folks in John 6 is the exact same problem with us today. We want to seek after Jesus for what He can do for us politically, socially, and financially, but Jesus came to be our daily bread, not our daily snack. Jesus says something really unique here. He says, I have authority to give out this bread because upon me the Father has set His seal. In ancient Near Eastern culture, when a king or an ambassador wanted to sanction something with his authority, he stamped a letter or whatever gift he had with a royal signet. And what Jesus is saying is, I've been commissioned and appointed for this very work by the Father. I have the seal of the Father to give out this bread. I have the signet, the appointed task. That's my work. Now here's your work. Believe in me. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him, whom He has sent. Listen up here, okay? The surest sign that God is working in someone's life is that they believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what He says. Verse 29, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So on some fundamental level, I mean, not, we, 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 we don't want to be people's judge, but at some fundamental level, Jesus gives us license to say, at some level... You cannot be a Christian unless you believe in the gospel. Someone can go to church. They can have kids in church. They can know Bible verses. They can be a great person. They can have a bunch of really good Christian friends. But if you cannot tell me what the gospel is, I have reason to believe that your works are not God's works. Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in me. And it takes nothing less than a work of God for us to believe in Him. How frustrating it might have been for Jesus when immediately after telling them that it took faith, they come back with, well, show us a sign. Moses gave us manna from heaven. What they didn't understand is that it wasn't Moses who gave them manna from heaven. It was God, and the only reason He gave them manna in heaven wasn't just to supply them with food in that instance. It was to point to the real manna, which is Jesus Christ. After the Israelites ate the man in the Old Testament, they, they got what? They got hungry. But Jesus says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. People who have not found Jesus in this life, friends, they are always consuming, and they are never filled. 
we could, it's very possible, we could construct this church in such a way that we could get people to come and we could offer them a good. I could get, we could, we could spend a lot of money and we could get a play place out here. We could get really fancy signs. We could get a really fancy stage and worship band, all the while never really offering them bread, just giving them things to snack on so that they can be here for an hour on Sunday and then they could leave, all the while having never really followed Jesus. We just gave them something to consume for an hour. To be a sinner without Jesus is to be an unsatisfied person. This is what Jesus says. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. How many people have ever heard a new song that you loved and you just kept listening to it over and over and over? Raise your hand. Logan, what was it? I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> what happened after a while? You got tired of it, didn't you? What happened? I thought you loved it. <laughs> Josh Jameson's listening to the same song over and over. I can, I actually, I can see that. Not unbelievable. Um, what did it? What did it lose? I mean, didn't you love the song? What happened? You keep you keep listening to it. It's the same song. Why would you not like it any less? Why would you like it any less? What happened after a while? It lost its what? Its newness. Lost its appeal. How many people have ever gotten into a TV show you really liked? Probably Netflix. Huh? I wish Bob were here. You're like, what's Netflix? Um, after a few seasons, how many of y'all watch Netflix after a few seasons? You're like, I got bored. Found a new one. Y'all don't raise your hand now, do you? How many people were ever happy to... How many people, raise your hand, were happy to see the warm weather come after it was so cold this winter? How many people... Down, now again. How many people are now tired of the warm weather? Okay, there you go. Do you see a pattern here? What's my point? God has made it very clear through almost every sense we have that nothing will keep you satisfied. Not with the food you eat, not with the songs you listen to, not with the shows you watch, not with the weather you feel. This morning when we partook of the Lord's Supper, what we were saying was, we're, we're testifying that Jesus is the true, bled, the true bread and we have finally found satisfaction. That's what we're telling the world and the church when we eat that bread and we drink that juice. The Lord's Supper is a picture of Christ giving His flesh and His blood so that we can finally find satisfaction in this world. This is how God is glorified. John Piper's famous saying, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. If God cannot satisfy you, if God is your little compartment that you put in this little corner here while you've got your other life around here, that means you're finding your satisfaction somewhere else. You're just giving God His due too. That's not how Christianity was designed. What Jesus is telling these people is, no, 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 I'm not just one meal. I'm the meal. I'm the main course. I'm the point. I'm the one you're living for. And that is the only way you glorify me. That's the only way I know you. 
came down from heaven that he might satisfy us completely in all that we do. Scholars have long noticed that there is no Lord's Supper scene in the book of John in the way that there is in the other Gospels. You ever notice that? And most scholars believe that John didn't need to include it because he includes John 6. I am the bread of life. Jesus is essentially telling them the same thing here as He did in the upper room. This is my body broken for you. So, if you're in this crowd right now, even if you're one of the twelve, we're going to see next week, even the twelve had a problem with it. There are many people at this point, as Scripture will tell us last next week, there are many people at this point who said they were a disciple of Jesus. And they fell off. So just imagine you're one of those people in right now, having just heard him say, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. If I, were, if I didn't have the Spirit of God in me, and I had no idea what in the world he was saying, I would have been like, I thought this guy was the Messiah. Now he's telling me he wants to eat, that i got to eat him. I'm out. I would have been out. Instead of backtracking and be Jesus, Jesus probably, you know, we would think that Jesus would be like, no, 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 guys, guys, no, you're not understanding here. What I really meant, I mean, let me try to explain it. Don't, before you leave, let me give you a chance here. He didn't know that. Jesus doesn't do that. He knows what he's getting ready to say. What he has said is offensive. And you know how, what he does now? He actually follows that with something that's even more offensive. Not that, matter of fact, I think the second one's to, the, to our flesh is just as offensive. Before we, before we get to what he says, he does this for two reasons. What Jesus says next is designed to do two things. It's designed to offend the unbelievers, and it's designed to encourage and comfort the believers. Jesus is about to teach them about faith because he wants them to find out who really believes. Now, before we get into this church, I want to ask you this question. Okay? I've got to preface this because this is really, really, really deep, what he says. And I would venture to say a lot of people haven't read this. Just ask yourself. Don't raise your hand. Josh, don't raise your hand. Okay? Just think to yourself. Why do some people hear and believe in the gospel and others hear the gospel and don't believe? Have you ever thought about that? I hope you have. Why is it that some people can spend their entire lives in church, take the Lord's Supper, be baptized, even claim to profess and follow Jesus, and yet they don't? But yet, sometimes their brother sitting right next to them or their sister heard the same gospel, did the same things, and does. How many people do you know, raise your hand if you have someone that you grew up with in church who now doesn't really follow Jesus, but yet you do. Why did that happen? If God's all-knowing, God's all-powerful, if He's sovereign, if he, if, he, if he can look in the future and know things, why did He create it like that? Friends, Jesus tells us right here in John 6. And his answer, surprisingly, is not free will. Now, let me preface that. In some sense, we all have free will. Okay? 
the reason we don't talk a lot about it is it's basically assumptions, meaning I assume you used your free will today to get up out of bed and put on pants and come to church. We're not robots and we're not animals. The problem is not that we don't have free will. The problem is that we've used our free will to reject God and run away. All have gone astray, is what Paul says. Not one sinner has used their free will any better than the other sinner has. We're going to see next week, Jesus says, the flesh profits nothing. All free will has gotten us as a death sentence in heaven. Therefore, it's God who initiates the relationship. And this is what he says, verses 36 through 41. This is deep stuff. Please pay attention. Verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that whoever looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now the ones who believe know why they believe, and they know why the people who don't, don't. Let's explain. While many people believe in Jesus, they hear His voice, but they reject Him. Jesus says that all the Father has given the Son will come to Him. And Jesus will never cast them out. In other words, it is the Father who calls the church. And the Father will make sure that these people believe in Jesus. And the way we know who the elect are is by seeing who believes in the gospel. But Jesus wants us to know that the reason they come is not by their own power. It's not even by their own will. Not one sinner has ever come to Jesus by their own power. They come to Jesus because the Father gives them to the Son. 39. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So it's not even by our will, it's the Father's will. This is one of the most encouraging verses in the entire Bible for the Christian, and this is why. The Father will make sure that His elect will come to the Son, and the Son will make sure that He doesn't let you go. This is the best news in the world. For those who put their faith in Jesus, Jesus promises us He's going to hold on to you, and He's not going to let you go. This means that I, Avi Todd, receive Jesus of my own free will. But the only reason I could use my free will to choose Jesus was because the God the Father first gave me to the Son so that I might come to Him. If you are in Christ today, if you believe in the Gospel today, if you've put your faith in Him, you came to Jesus ultimately not of your own power or even of your own will. God the Father gave you to the Son. The Son kept you and saved you. And the Holy Spirit regenerated your heart that you might be born again. God, the Trinity, saves sinners. All three persons of the Godhead are invested personally and intimately in your salvation. In Jesus, the triune God is working together for your good. Please, we've got to remember this the next time we think God isn't listening and God doesn't care. This is one of the primary reasons you will never hear me preach about free will behind this pulpit because free will is just kind of the assumption. I don't have to preach about free will. The idea that my decision was made completely free of God, however, is an insult to the God who get, went to such great lengths to save me. This is not called Calvinism. 
This is John chapter 6. No one comes to a father unless he what? Draws him. And here's even better news. God does not keep one sinner from coming to Jesus. They don't come to Jesus. Why? Because they're sinners. And the few who do come, they came strictly by His grace. I've heard some people say this. This is, please, if you say this, Try not to say it. <laughs> um, God did most of the work. God did all the work. God did 99% of the work, but I had to take the first step. If we have a big view of God, don't say that. And here's why. That's not biblical because what Jesus says here is the first step was not you coming to Jesus. It was the Father granting that you might come to Jesus. The very first step wasn't us. The, pro the flesh profits nothing. Here's what I just I was grasping at straws, really trying to articulate how deep this is, and of course I did what I always need to do, and that's go to Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon says this: if if God requires a sinner dead in his sin to make the first step, then He requires us the same thing that is impossible under the gospel that it was under the law, since man is unable to believe as he is to obey. What this all means is this. I have no right as a redeemed sinner. I have no right to come to someone else and go, I believed and you didn't. It was all by grace. We cannot look on anyone else on this earth and think that we're better than them. God does exactly what He says, and that is, come to me by my own power. And so here's what verse 40 says. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. It is God's will that whosoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. And for those who do, we know how they get there. God got them there. Everyone who believes in Jesus today, you have God to thank for that. So I wanted to end. Why is this even relevant? Why is this relevant? I mean, I mean, it's real deep. I know God did all the stuff. I mean, I know He went to such great lengths to save me. Why does this matter? I, Abi Todd, have days where I feel like I have failed as a Christian. I have days when I speak unkindly to my wife. I have days when I go an entire day without prayer. I have days when I question my calling and I'm extremely selfish and I feel like I failed as a Christian. Maybe you have those two. I feel like I'm a bad dad because I, I, I disciplined Roman. Or I didn't spend enough time with Roman and Ruby. On those days, I need the good news that Jesus has me in His hands, friends, because if Jesus doesn't have me, I don't have me. I have no hope other than the message that God is holding me. And it's just like when I'm walking across the road with Ruby. She, uh, Ruby thinks that she's holding my hand. Who really has Ruby? Me. See, she's holding mine like we're holding God's. It's all her. She's doing it. I'm not forcing her. But who has her hand clasped 
so that she might not go. It's daddy. That's the gospel. Friends, I beg you this morning, please put your faith in Jesus. If you have not put your faith in Jesus, cast your soul upon Him because we now know He will satisfy us as the manna of God, but He will keep you. He will keep you. I think Baptists, this is not even a concern, Baptists have failed in the sense that when we baptize people, we went, okay, good, you can't lose your salvation. Good. Don't tell them that. You know what they're going to do? They're going to leave. That's the wrong thing because now you've told them they can do whatever they want. Now they're still saved. No, no, that's not what Jesus says. Don't let the sovereignty of God cancel your responsibility to follow after Him and run the race. What we should do is we should say, hey, you have new life in Christ. You're walking in obedience. Seek after Him. But hey, He promises it's not under your power and He's got you. It's just like when one day my dad, well, one, my, day, my dad used to be a swim coach. What he did when he got me in the water was not, hey, you can't drown. Oh, good. He said, hey, come on. Who had me the whole time? Dad did. That is the gospel. I think we play these games about sovereignty and free will. I think what we should do is, it's us living our lives, but we have to live our lives with our sin, with our suffering, with parenting, with marriage. Life is hard, and we need the message that God's in control. Because if He is not, who wants to live in that world? It's horrible. The next time you turn on the TV, there's probably a 50% chance something going on in the world right now that's going to make you go, my goodness, we are headed to hell. And the only thing that's going to keep you from getting angry, God's in control. That is Christianity. It doesn't cancel human responsibility. It's the net when you fall. We need to live in a world where we know that a big God works all things according to the counsel of His will. And we need to live the Christian life knowing that every step we took, Daddy was right there. That is the walk we walk. And I don't want to walk any other walk other than knowing the hand of God is upon me. If you believe in the gospel today, you cast your soul upon Jesus and you believed in Him and that was your decision. If you have not done so, judgment is upon your head and the only way to find salvation is in Jesus Christ. Come forward. But if you're living your life right now as a Christian thinking that it's all by you and on your power, you're still in the Old Testament thinking that you can fulfill the law. The new covenant of Christ says that now He has put His power in our hearts that we might not turn from Him. That's the glory of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we've come because you've granted us to come. We've come because you've drawn us to you. Father, give us the strength and the power. Give us the faith to walk in obedience. Give us the humility to know that none of it is by our own power. Give us the strength to run the race and give us the consolation and the comfort to know that Daddy is there. And all these things we ask in your Son's name. Amen.